Hi there, this is How to Choose, the show that helps you make better decisions and improve your judgment. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tessa. And I'm Ken. And as regular listeners to the show would probably realize, Tessa and I are avid readers. And we decided that it might be helpful for you if we started sharing some of the specific things that we're learning from some of the books we're reading. Now, these aren't exactly book reviews, are they, Tess? No, Ken. We decided instead to frame this as five lessons from the book we're focusing on. So they might not necessarily be the key points that the author wanted to communicate, but they're five neat things that we learned when reading or listening to the book. And we'll be honest too about things that we might not have loved so much. So it will give you an idea of whether you might want to go out and get the book. And we also decided that we'll sprinkle these episodes in throughout the year. So this isn't a series that's going to be all book reviews. It's basically episodes to kind of break up our seasons and they'll appear based on when we happen to have finished a useful book. And you've been reading a bit recently, haven't you, Ken? Yes. I found a renewed energy for reading after recently finishing my master's degree last month. Yay! Um, So the first book is from an Australian author named Bo Seo. He has recently released a book called Good Arguments. But first, a little bit about the author. Bo Sio is Australia's two-time world debating champion, and it is a great book. It's something of a hybrid between a biography and a textbook on debating. It's really readable. It's quite an exciting personal story, and I feel fairly confident that somebody is going to option this and make a movie out of Bo Sio's story. But I thought maybe we could take five lessons from the book and have a bit of a chat about those and see how they can apply to us as we're trying to improve our judgment and navigate our way through some decisions in our lives. So how about this, Tess? The first one uh, I think you'll find interesting, and that is that CO argues that disagreement can be a way of showing respect. This is a quote from the book. He said, rebuttal which is something obviously you do in debate, formal debating. Someone makes an argument, someone rebuts it. He says, rebuttal was a vote of confidence, not only in ourselves, but in our opponents. One that contained the judgment that the other person was deserving of our candor and that they would receive it with grace. So you have to ponder that a little bit, but he's really saying, you know, disagreement is a way that we demonstrate that what the other person has said is worth listening to. It's worth kind of taking time to think about and uh, respond to. I don't know about you, Tess, but growing up for me, conflict and disagreement was not necessarily managed very happily in our family. So I think I grew up being fairly conflict averse. I, I found that disagreement was something that I struggled with. Yeah, Ken, I was very much the same. I wonder if it's a, a youngest child thing, but um, <laughs> definitely I've had to I've had to force myself out of trying to be agreeable all the time. Mum always said that it was really uh, easy to discipline me because all she had to do was kind of look at me crossly and I'd probably burst into tears. I just hated <laughs> hated being told off, hated any type of argument. But I think this is a really different way of thinking about disagreeing. Because we do avoid confrontation. I think for a lot of us, it's it's uh, taught. Some some of us, it's innate, probably like you and I, Ken. Um, but we don't want to be disagreeable. Um, we don't want to hurt our relationship with people either. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is actually, you know, so important that we're not going to be damaging the relationship. Hopefully, this will actually improve our relationship. We're helping our friend or colleague to actually improve. You know, hopefully, we're improving their argument or their judgment or their work by providing that kind of candor. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think it's depersonalizing the issue a little bit. You know, if we see every um, point of disagreement as being a, a personal attack on ourselves, then we're not going to welcome it from other people. And we're going to be afraid to offer disagreements because we, we're thinking, well, that's that's going to hurt someone's feelings, as you said, or that's going to damage the relationship. So I think it's something I, I know we've talked about this before. It, it's something we've both learned in our work as analysts that it's all about decoupling yourself from from your beliefs and from your conclusions and trying to be as objective about it as you can. And some of the different techniques that analysts use are really designed to help you do that, to try and be more objective and to push the argument out away from yourself and and try to look at it from a distance. So yeah, I, I like that. Disagreement can be a way of showing respect. So that's a different way to think about it. Obviously, you can disagree respectfully or disrespectfully. You can be very belittling and demeaning in the way that you um, disagree with someone, but you can do it in a, in a respectful way that strengthens the relationship. The second one then is Bosia, and this is quite interesting, he came up with a bit of a checklist for when to engage in a disagreement. So this is outside of the context of a formal debate. And so he reflects a lot in his book about you know, when should I disagree? I've got these incredible skills of debate, but I don't want to go around disagreeing with people all the time. So he came up with four things. He said, is the disagreement real? So in other words, take some time to work out if you and uh, your friend or colleague are actually disagreeing, or if you're talking at cross purposes, one of you might be arguing about one issue and someone might be arguing about something else. So that's the first one. Is it a real disagreement? The second is, is it important? So you've got to pick and choose the times, I think, when you want to put energy into a disagreement. He said, is it specific? Because sometimes if it's so broad, you can't really get to any point of of conclusion about an issue because it's you just haven't really honed in on the specific issue of concern. And you can think about that in relationships too, or all kinds of contexts where you know you may be generally frustrated about something, be expressed in something. Oh, you're so inconsiderate. Oh, I'm not inconsiderate. It's a really vague disagreement. Whereas you know what you need to do is say, well, look, can you give me some examples of what make what's making you feel that way? And that's where you can get down to the specifics. And then the the last one that he says, are the goals of the two sides aligned? So are you trying to reach a common point of better understanding? Or is someone just being disagreeable because they're in a bad mood? uh, They just want to pick a fight. So I said, if you don't have common goals, then it's probably going to be a waste of time. So is it real? Is it important? Is it specific? And are the two sides aligned in their goals when they're disagreeing? He gives a, a, a contrast with unuseful disagreements that might arise over silly issues such as dishwashing. And it's interesting that he said a statistic in the United States, the average household reported having 217 arguments related to dishwashing in a year. That's a huge number, isn't it? So he said, not a useful disagreement, most likely. You're probably not going to reach any great level of understanding and alignment. Although I am the dishwasher in my family, so it does sometimes feel quite important, but it's probably not really. Yeah. So it sounds like despite being a two-time world debating champion, he doesn't actually debate every issue, does he? He's really discerning about what he's actually going to take a stand on. 
Yeah, that's right. And CO admits that the book is something of a philosophical reflection on what debate is all about. You know, when should we debate? When shouldn't we debate? What should what is good debating look like? And useful disagreement, as well as being a guide to what makes a strong argument, as the title suggests, good arguments. And it's also that autobiography, as I mentioned. All right. Well, the next lesson that I took on was how to deal with liars. Now, this is a little bit complicated. So he talks about an approach of plug and replace. So I'll explain it and then we'll try and illustrate it with a back and forth. But he said, if if someone says something to you that is a lie. Now, I, I don't think you have to restrict this to lies. It can be someone who maybe is just repeating something that they think is true, but is not true. But he said, take that bit of wrong information, plug it into a broader view of the world, and, and then say, look, if that's true, then we would expect to see this, or we would expect this to be the world that we live in, and then replace the lie with the truth, and then explain why the truth that you've offered instead is more likely really true. So that all sounds a bit confusing. So let's try it out, Tessa. Yeah. Look, I'll do something that I'm confident is uh, is a lie and also something I disagree with. Ken, I think that we should ban immigration into Australia because they're much more likely to be violent and are going to commit crimes when they come to Australia. Well, that's really interesting, Tess. So if that was true, then we would expect to see a large proportion of immigrants in prison for violent crimes, being convicted of those crimes, wouldn't we? So a larger proportion than of our native-born citizens in Australia. Interestingly, the truth is that immigrants are less likely to be convicted of violent crimes, according to statistics. So if that's the case, if they're less likely to be convicted, we're actually not seeing them in prison. So the reality is that they're probably not more violent than anyone else. In fact, you know, we might even argue that if if immigrants who are coming to Australia under difficult circumstances and living in in maybe more difficult environments and and more dangerous neighbourhoods are still, despite that, not being drawn into a life of violent crime or violent activity, um, that they may be even less violent than native-born citizens on average. Yeah, so just to clarify, Tess and I are making up a scenario here. This is not actual statistics. I hope it's true. I'm sure it is true, actually, again. <laughs> yeah, but it's an example of where if you know what you're talking about, you can confront the misinformation with the reality by doing the plug and replace. So it's really, if this is true, then this is what we'd expect to see. However, what we're seeing is actually this. So it probably isn't true. So that's the plug and replace. It's kind of a shortcut way to focus in on the misinformation without getting really caught up in a long and unfruitful argument. And I think this is part of what you can learn from both CEO's book. Formal debating is time bound. So there's a lot of discipline involved in picking and choosing what you say and when you say it. So if you're wanting to really learn how to argue more effectively, it is a good book. It gives you some good tips. The important thing with this, Ken, is that you actually do need some evidence, don't you, to have this uh, plug and replace. So it's probably worth going to a little bit of effort on issues you really care about or you know, even those kind of common conspiracies that, that are floating around because there's so much mis- and disinformation that I think it's actually useful for us to counter some of these arguments when you hear them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I know it is easy to say, oh, look, I just couldn't be bothered. Bo CEO makes that 
point himself. He said, you know, it takes 30 seconds to make a misleading scientific statement and it can take 30 minutes to refute it. You can feel like it's a waste of time, but I think we've got to pick and choose our issues and on important issues, whether it's an issue of principle that you feel very strongly about, or even whether it's a person that you're trying to help who's making a difficult decision and you feel like they really are not being accurate about the information that they're basing the decision on, then it's worth the time and effort, isn't it, to, to really say, let me try and get some information here that's accurate and help you to see uh, this situation a little bit differently. All right. Well, the next one is an interesting one as well. I really like this and it resonates uh, in terms of the analytic work that we both you and I do, Tess, and it's called side switching. The trick is to imagine that you are now supporting the other side of the argument. Brainstorm the best four arguments in support of the other side. Now, you've got to be honest here. You can't just kind of make a caricature of the other side. It's trying to really look at their best arguments. And I think it's it's not easy to do this, is it? But I think it's quite powerful. And it allows you to look at, from the outside, look from the opponent's perspective, or look from, from another angle at your own views and your own opinions. And you can stress test. That's another thing you can do. Review your argument from the perspective of an opponent. So imagine someone else has heard what you've said, and they're now preparing to refute what you've said. What would be the strongest arguments against your opinion or your point of view? Yeah, this reminds me of the straw man, steel man approach. Have you heard of that, Ken? No, I haven't. So the straw man is uh, basically where someone creates the illusion of having, you know, refuted or defeated an opponent's position to basically replacing their argument with a, you know, a basic, easy to, to defeat argument, you know, standing up a straw man, whereas a steel man is doing the opposite of that and say, and looking at your opponent's argument. And even if they haven't made this, when you're debating them, you actually have to debate the strongest version. And it's a much more powerful form of debate because, you know, you're giving them the benefit of the doubt uh, and really trying to go after that that high level rather than, you know, going for the, the easy win. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting one. I've never heard that before. Our fifth lesson that I took from the book was just that not everything that seems to be an argument is actually an argument. So an argument is not just a strongly voiced or strongly worded claim. If that claim has no reasons or evidence to support it, then it's not actually an argument at all. There's no basis for it. So if I said, you know, I was getting relationship advice and someone said to me, Ken, I don't think that person is good for you. Now, is that an argument? Well, no, it's just a, it's a pure claim that there's not even any reasons. So let's say you had said that to me and I, I went back to you and said, well, Tess, you know, what are some, why do you say that? Why do you say they're not good for me? What are your reasons? What might be a reason? And I could say, well, I saw that uh, at dinner last weekend, he wasn't treating you with respect. So you've you've given a reason and then you've also given some evidence as, as well, right? So the reason could be the person doesn't treat you with respect, but then you've given more than that. You've said, well, here's an example. It was last week at dinner. Mm. And, and I might say, oh, I can't remember what, what happened. So what I'm asking for is can you kind of mm. remind me of the specific evidence. I'm not saying give me the evidence, but what happened again? And then I might say, well, don't you remember you were you were in the middle of a really, you know, 
spirited story and he just cut you off and dismissed you and, and moved the whole group on. And it just came across as, you know, showing you no respect uh, when everyone actually was really engaged in what you were saying. Well, wow, that's interesting. I didn't even notice that. So what Tess and I have powerfully role-played for you <laughs> is just an example of going from a claim that has no basis, right, then this he's not good for you, to a claim that has a reason. And the reason is that, you know, a, a good partner will treat you with respect, right? And this person doesn't respect you. So there's kind of a, a logic behind it. And then there's evidence as well. The evidence says, well, look, I saw it. And then I might say, well, that, that surely that's a one-off. And then Tess might say, well, actually, you know, it wasn't just that time. So let me go to my notebook and I've cataloged <laughs> yeah. all of the incidents. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If if we're trying to work through these sort of decisions that require us to be able to make good judgments, you really need to have reasons to support your judgments and you need evidence to support the reasons. Mm, and I think all of these points are, are really important to consider before you do enter into an argument because, like you said, some things aren't worth bothering with while other things are actually worth doing a little bit of preparation and putting that mental effort into so you're prepared. So let's try to be more discerning before launching into debate, but also don't be afraid to debate. Remember, it can be a sign of respect and that the person you do choose to debate deserves your candor. So some some reflection time for all of us. And I think for me, look, don't just think of arguments as being conflict. Having a discussion where we test those ideas, where we check the reasons and evidence that lie behind our beliefs is a really good thing, right? That's the only way that we're going to ensure that our judgments are strong and sound. So that is our first book review of Bo CEO's Good Arguments. It is a really fun read. It's an easy read. I learned a lot from it. Uh, so I would encourage you to pick that one up and read about a, a person who has had an amazing journey, really, from coming into Australia as a non-English speaker. I didn't mention that at the start. He didn't speak any English when he arrived here. I think he was eight or nine, learned English, and then became a world debating champion it's really amazing. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our show, How to Choose, and visit us at goodbetterright.com.au. And it is the holiday season, so I'd encourage you all to go back and listen to our Christmas Decisions episodes from 9 December last year. Our next episode will be the start of Season 5, and we'll be exploring eight characteristics of great decision makers. Our first topic is curiosity, so keep your ears open in 2024. And so, Tess, the other thing to mention too, some exciting news is that there is an early Christmas present coming to one of our listeners. And for those people who've been following on our socials, you might have seen that we were running a competition ahead of our next season, which required you to think about an attribute of good decision making. And the winner of our competition, and I'll insert a drum roll here, is. Dave Glarian. So congratulations to Dave. Dave will be soon the recipient of one of the wonderful How to Choose tea slash coffee mugs, which are available for purchase. But if you are excited by the thought of competitions and thinking, well, how come I didn't know about the competition? Then the reason is you're not following us on our socials. So jump onto our website. You can start following us. And we do run competitions relatively regularly. So we love a good giveaway, don't we, Tess? We do. And feel free to reach out as well. We love feedback. Comment, uh, like, 
uh, and have a chat with us. We are always happy to have a conversation and tell your friends about us. We'd love to meet them too. Sharing what we're learning is an awesome way to reinforce those lessons. Absolutely right. Bye for now. 